By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Labor shortages have been in the headlines for a number of years now. And although sharp rises in interest rates have started to slow economies and reduce headline inflation, core inflation has been stubbornly high and the resilience of labor markets continues to surprise markets. It's now normal to hear how businesses are struggling to attract and retain the right people. And in just the last few months, we've heard how labor shortages could threaten some mega projects in the US and Europe. So with this in mind, we ask, are we running out of workers? I'm Jennifer Wong, and this is Moody's Talks to the Big Picture where we answer the big questions facing credit markets. On today's show, I'm joined by Yasmina Sergini from our corporate finance group and Gabe Agostini from Moody's credit strategy and research team. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Gabe, I'd like to start with you. What's behind these labor shortages we've been seeing? Yeah, so I mean, labor shortages have permeated the advanced economies really for the better part of three years now. Uh, but the underlying causes of these shortages have evolved over time. So for 2021 to 2022, these were mostly caused by, I guess, what we can call pandemic-related frictions. You had economies that were basically ready to go gangbusters once vaccines rolled out, thanks to a ton of you know, major fiscal and monetary policy support. But the labor supply at the time was just not there to meet that strong demand because of sickness, uh, fear of getting COVID, uh, border closures, uh, childcare-related issues, you name it. And with those pandemic pressures eased, what's happening now? Yeah, so a good question because, you know, fast forward to today in 2023, and most of these frictions have basically subsided, not fully, but for the most part, they're pretty much washed through the system. In fact, uh, what we found in a recent report is that workers below the age of 65 today are actually participating in the workforce at higher rates today than they were before the pandemic. And that's true for almost every major advanced economy that we're following. Uh, This is mainly driven by higher wages that are enticing people in and and bringing them in. So what's the problem now? Uh, We think that most of it can basically be explained by uh, adverse demographics in these countries. Populations of these advanced economies are relatively old and they're getting relatively older. So just to put in the context, baby boomers right now are basically between the age of 60 to 75. It's right around the time you leave the workforce for good. And put simply, their, their departure is being felt. Uh, so the, that's the, the older workers that are leaving the, the workforce for good are not being replaced fast enough by younger workers that are being enticed in via higher wages. This dynamic is not uh, as sharp for every advanced economy, but it's the case for the U.S., Germany, Italy, and others. And Yasmina, I'm going to bring you in here. What are we seeing at the company level? Are we seeing these shortages across regions and sectors? And what's behind these trends in your view? Well, labor shortages, uh, they've been a notable operational issues, issue for corporates across most of the sectors uh, and countries uh, in recent years. So it's been really one of those really broad-based issues that anytime you engage with management teams, really uh, surfacing the conversation as a really main uh, focus for the top management. And 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 it's it's th- these really shortages result from several issues. So you can't really pin pin down one one problem, one particular problem for for sectors. Uh, we've had compensation issues in some working environments, but also just like Gabe mentioned, demographic and and technological changes. 
We've had a change in dynamics lately because of the macroeconomic conditions slowdown. But for many sectors, uh, these issues are not new. And we're really dealing with structural issues for the most part. If you take, for example, um, in the US, the hospitality and restaurant industries, uh, well, they've had the highest quit rates um, since uh, July 2021, nearly 5%, and then followed by the retail industry, which is not a, a really big surprise at uh, slightly over 3%. And these industries really struggle uh, to retain their workers, uh, most likely because of uh, typically low wages uh, and difficult uh, working conditions. But mm -hmm. acute labor imbalances, uh, they also remain in other sectors. Uh, let me take another example. If you take the healthcare and social assistance sector, we've seen issues in those sectors for years. And, and shortages of nurses, for example, have been reported uh, in the US, uh, as well as in many countries in Europe, like Germany, France, and, and others. And this is a situation that's been exacerbated by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. We from a sector perspective, we tend to see less of those imbalances in the more stable, uh, higher paying sectors like financial services. But now that wages are rising, uh, workers are coming back, participation rates are, are rising. What does this all mean for credit worthiness? Yasmin, I'll ask you this as well. Uh, we're seeing these pressures across multiple sectors. What does it mean for credit? Um, labor um, is, is really one of the largest cost lines for most corporates, and, and they represent uh, anywhere between 30% and up to 70% of the corporate spending. So anytime we talk about labor shortages, it really means higher cost and pressure on their operating margins. Uh, and this is typically because um, a corporate uh, will be adopting a variety of measures uh, to remedy the situation uh, the best they can. So from increasing the compensation upskilling, training their workforce. Uh, they also hire internationally. They offer more flexibility to their staff, typically the remote work that's been spreading uh, wildly around the globe. And this all really means pressure on margins. And from a macro perspective, Gabe, why do these labor pressures matter? Yeah, I think there's I think there's two, two uh, ways to think about it. One, uh, and I think Yasmin already put this clearly, it puts pressure on wages, right? And so that's that's unsustainable for many businesses. Yasmina talked about larger corporates, but in particular, smaller businesses as well don't have the same uh, margin or balance sheet flexibility that larger corporations do. So it's it's difficult for that. And second is that wage pressure uh, that we're seeing right now in the U.S., but across the world, uh, even if it's not entirely related to short labor shortages, it's uh, labor shortages keep inflationary pressures higher than they otherwise would be. And more importantly, inconsistent with central bank inflation targets, which are mainly around two percent. Right, that's keeping central banks on their toes and, uh, you know, unable to to durably press pause on rate hikes, um, which is obviously going to weigh on uh, economic activity going forward with higher for longer rates. How are things looking now? Do you expect the situation to get better for companies, Yasmina? We do expect pressure to ease somewhat in the near term. We do think labor shortages uh, will improve, at least momentarily, because uh, within the sectors uh, which rely most on discretionary spending, for example, uh, we do have softer macroeconomic conditions, which will play a role and help there, or within other sectors which are more sensitive to rising interest rates like construction. So we do expect the situation to get better um, uh, in the next few, few quarters. Picking up on Yasmina's comment on softer economic conditions, We've seen some indicators recently showing some easing in labor market tightness. Gabe, does this mean labor shortages will soon be behind us? 
Yeah, I mean, the good news is that in the near, we've already started seeing easing labor shortages, and this is shown in both hard data sources and soft data sources. So, for example, on the hard data side, we usually measure labor demand by how much of job vacancies are there, how many jobs go unfilled. And these job vacancies have basically peaked late last year and have been turning back towards uh, 2019 levels in the US and Europe, pretty much all across the advanced economies. Soft data is telling us the same story. Um, so on, on S&P 500 earning calls in the first quarter of this year, mentions of job cuts outpaced mentions of job shortages for the first time since 2021. So business behavior is changing, job vacancies are coming in, labor demand is easing. That's the short-term picture. We expect that to continue over the next year as economies slow. The longer-term outlook is a little bit more challenging. Um, so for instance, you know, we've already mentioned all these demographic challenges you mentioned. These are only going to intensify over the next, say, five to 10 years as these old populations get even older. And you know, when they do, when, when these older workers exit the, the workforce for retirement, uh, there's going to be fewer younger workers to replace them. Uh, and this could lead to a resurgence of labor shortages in the next business cycle. That means relatively higher inflationary pressures, relatively tighter margins for businesses that have to raise wages to attract workers. Uh, so a relatively more challenging outlook. Based upon OECD projections, uh, which measure you know, how large the working age population is over the long term, it looks like these pressures might be the most acute in the US, Germany, and Korea. And these longer term trends, uh, aging demographics, Yasmina, what does it mean for corporates? The reality is that whilst we do expect effectively those um, uh, issues to abate a little bit in the near term, I wholeheartedly echo what um, Gabe said about the long term. There are sectors which will be suffering. Uh, certainly, if, if we go back to the example that I picked earlier about healthcare, uh, we do expect doctors and nurses to basically uh, go on retirement uh, across, you know, across many jurisdictions, which is creating effectively a big uh, issue in terms of even succession planning um, for, for a lot of the large corporates. There is another issue which I think is important to, uh, to to mention is that there is also a shortage of talents and skilled workers, and that continues. Um, there is a, a survey that has been uh, published earlier this year by the um, uh, global staffing company Manpower Group. And what they basically mention is that uh, the global talent shortage has reached a 17-year high this year, uh, with nearly four out of five employers globally struggling to hire skilled um, staff. And this really comes at a fairly unopportune time because this is when corporates operate in more complex environment. There is continued digitization, introduction of even more sophisticated technologies. We have climate change and environmental uh, regulation, which are tightening uh, every year. And these 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 changes, uh, they all require a skilled workforce and, and they are struggling to find out. Yeah. So over the shorter term, we might see some improvements, but over the longer term, we have these challenges. So what can improve things? Where do we go from here? How do we resolve these longer term labor shortage issues? Gabe, I'll ask you first. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're a country and a policymaker of a country faced with a labor shortage or, you know, more specifically, not enough workers, there's two broad things you can do. You can one, grow the size of your labor force by taking specific policies um, to do so, or you can make the existing labor force that you have more productive, basically do more with less. I mean, there's a, that sounds really easy, but it's a little bit uh, easier said than done. You know, in terms of growing the labor force, what we've seen is boosting female participation rates, you know, bringing more women into the workforce, matching the same uh, rates that uh, men work. You could also boost immigration, right? So if you don't have enough workers inside of your country, you can bring in workers from outside the country and make them, you know, integrate them into your workforce. 
uh, in terms of productivity. That's technology, automation, worker upskilling and education, things like that. And Yasmina, what, what's your perspective on this? I think there is one one factor that Gabe has mentioned, which certainly is very high on corporate's agenda, and it's female labor participation. Clearly, uh, it varies a lot across the sectors, so it's not like a one-size-fits-all type of discussion. But you, you, there are sectors which have been historically dominated by males, uh, the classic mining or construction, where women remain largely underrepresented. But we, the women continue to dominate in healthcare, social assistance, education sectors. I mean, these really are things we've we've, we've heard before. Um, and there are really only a few sectors which are really close to gender parity, uh, hospitality, food industries, you know, clerical jobs. Uh, but what it actually means um, is that, you know, corporates are uh, going to be uh, growing less um, if they do not have basically uh, access to a, a larger pool of workers, including female uh, workers. Uh, and, and the other thing which is very interesting to note is that the technology sectors, uh, right, which are expected to be part of the solution uh, to labor shortages, just like uh, Gabe was mentioning earlier about, you know, productivity gains, they actually themselves have a very low share of female workers. So they might be part of the solution, but they themselves actually have a, a, a problem on their hands. So the, it matters uh, from a credit perspective because corporates could suffer uh, from this underrepresentation of women. Uh, because it is less growth, uh, just like I was uh, saying before, and less productivity, uh, assuming women have access to more productive jobs. One thing I'd like to add, just from the from a more macro perspective, uh, you know, gaps remain pretty large between male and female participation in mo- in most of the advanced economies that we follow. There have been clear leaders uh, that have done a lot to boost female participation. Japan is a standout. Uh, went from a very low female participation rate to a relatively high one. But Germany and Australia have done a lot as well. Things like implementing childcare, paid parental leave, uh, basically just making flexibility more of an option for um, female workers in the workforce. Um, but you know, despite all this progress, men are still working at much higher rates than women, which means that closing those gaps do offer a pretty worthwhile avenue for countries to you know, offset some of those adverse demographic trends. And um, I'm going to continue a little bit on that line of productivity and technological advances. Um, And this is the part of the show where we usually ask people what's one aspect of the debate that doesn't get enough attention and should. But to spin it around, I'm going to ask you about something that everyone's thinking about and talking about, AI. So will AI help to solve the labor shortage problem for us? And Gabe, I'm going to ask you first. I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, potential for it and whatnot. Uh, but I think it's worth keeping in mind how previous technologies have been implemented to do the same, right? So what we've seen for the last 20 years is that bringing technology and automation into the economy is much easier in the goods and heavy industry sector than it is in the service sector, right? So it's very easy to bring in heavy machinery into things like auto production, electronics, uh, to easily automate automatable processes, right? It's much more difficult to do it in the service sector where a lot of labor shortages still exist, right? It's, it's much harder to think about how to implement technology to get rid of nursing care, shortages in nursing care facilities or or truck driving, right? We've had uh, self-driving vehicles for about 10 years now, but it, uh, even though the technology is there, it's relatively hard to adopt it and implement it. You know, that said, I think generative AI probably might be more easily implementable in the service sector than previous technologies were. But I think the history uh, points us in the direction that maybe adopting and implementing could take a little bit longer than than, um, the current discussions suggest. 
And Yasmina, what are we seeing? It's difficult to argue against uh, those who say that, you know, AI, and by the way, not just Gen AI, but just uh, all the technologies are, you know, the potential to disrupt the industries going forward. You know, let me give you that that perspective. Frankly, it's very exciting. Uh uh, the possibilities for the corporates to to reshape their organizations, to create competitive advantages, to rebalance supply and demand for labor. It's also there. It's super exciting. There is a solution, I think. And so I, I really want to take the uh, uh, to to make some some counter some counter argument there. There are actually already, when you look at the corporate space, there are already many, many tangible applications for corporates um, uh, and the corporates which are actually struggling to find the talents that they need. Uh, the one common example, uh, if I can pick that one, uh, is the use of AI technology for for marketing and customer-facing activities. And I think uh, any one of us has had basically had to deal with the bot uh, if you you know reach out, reaching out to your insurance company or your bank. So this is really meant to create better customer experiences. And those industries are actually fairly far along uh, into the, uh, the the transformation towards the use of uh, the greater use of AI technology. And this is largely spread, as I said, in global banking insurance. But you do have other applications which are really uh, important for almost humankind, if I may. Uh, it is used in the pharmaceutical industry. It supports R&D efforts. Uh, it also meant, meant to streamline the processes. Uh, there was a, a survey that uh, the, um, the consultancy firm Deloitte has published um, not too long ago um, saying that more than three quarters of the biopharma companies, they invest in AI for clinical developments. So really for... Uh, for developing drugs and and faster, so um, uh, faster uh, with more efficiencies, less cost, better profitability. So this is all good, really, for corporates uh, which are able to actually implement uh, these technologies. So so to us, uh, AI has the uh, potential to for the healthcare and, and pharma industry to reduce time to market, to reduce the uh, the drug discovery cost. But there are plenty other applications which we think. Uh, will be you know, beneficial for the creditworthiness uh, of the corporates that we rate. Some exciting developments to think about. Gabe, Yasmina, thanks so much. That's all the time we have for today. And until next time, I'm Jennifer Wong, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.